Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 68. This week's episode brings you some genre-bending fantasy fiction kicked off by a piece of flash fiction by Michelle Munzler, titled This is the Story That Devours Itself. Michelle, also known at local conventions as the Cookie Lady, writes fiction both dark and strange to counterbalance the sweetness of her baking. Her fiction and poetry have been published in magazines such as Daily Science Fiction, Crossed Genres and Electric Velocipede, and she takes immense joy in crinkling words like little foil puppets. You can find her online via Facebook. Your narrator for this story is yours truly. I'm making a habit of this, aren't I? And so, dear listeners, here we have This is the Story That Devours Itself by Michelle Munzler. This is not a regular story. This is a hungry story, built of words with tongues of glass and cracked marbles for eyes. You think you know this story. You think you've heard it before, but you haven't. It only sounds like the ones you know, with its crunch, crunch, crunching of plot-laced bones and its smack, smack, smacking of fat story lips. There used to be characters in this story but they were the first to go, swallowed down its story gullet. Two of them screamed and declared their eternal love for each other. The third one merely laughed and vowed one day to return. There also used to be a setting, not a very good one, mind you, but solid enough to serve its purpose. That, too, was eaten, mashed into a paste of generic trees and endless airports and washed down with a maudlin shot of rain. No one misses that setting, though, or the characters, if we must be totally honest. Certainly not the story, and certainly not me. To be fair, the story has tried to create as much as it has eaten. Sucked sugar off three-act arcs until its head near exploded. 
moulded fleshy outlines to show off to its friends when its friends still visited, only to debone the outlines hours later and watch their skin slough uselessly to the floor. Once it even tried dialogue, a casual, Hello, left adrift in the void where its apartment had been a week earlier. 51B, in case you were wondering. And no, nobody responded. The story also tried to liven things with mood and tone, with analogy and metaphor. It clung to rocky cliffs, peaked and pitted by tongues of salt while seabirds wheeled tirelessly overhead. It heaved beneath the weight of olive trees bowed with fruit, sweet oil dripping down its back. But that, too, is now gone. It's all devoured, most everything that made the story what it was, that told it what to be. All the bits chomped and chewed and swallowed into an over-masticated mush. Very little remains of the story now, just two simple elements. It's hunger and me. I must admit to being a bit selfish at this point. I've argued with a story for days about the importance of narrators. Without us, a story can no longer be a story. Somebody must tell the words, must provide perspective, relay the wishes of the story to the world abroad. Right? Yes, of course I'm right. I am the narrator, after all, and I know my job better than anyone. But I saw the way the story eyed me last night. I saw hunger giggling in its ear while they both drank cheap wine created just for the occasion. The story didn't make wine for me, not even an empty cup. And now I've another invitation to visit the story tonight. It told me not to bother bringing a gift just to bring myself and don't be late. I tried declining. I did decline, but the words were swallowed before they left my mouth, consumed by the story's desire for completion, for resolution. So, here I am, despite myself, all dressed up and only one place to go. The story is king, after all, and nobody, not even this poor narrator, can refuse that. <laughs> Well, we've heard of a story taking on a mind of its own, but never of one becoming downright carnivorous. Never turn your back on hungry fiction, dear listeners. It may bite. So, our main story for this week is an exciting tale by Django Wexler, titled Guns of the Wastes. In addition to having an undeniably cool name, Django graduated from Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh with degrees in creative writing and computer science and worked for the university in artificial intelligence research. Eventually, he migrated to Microsoft in Seattle, where he now lives with two cats and a teetering mountain of books. When not writing, he wrangles computers, paints tiny soldiers and plays games of all sorts. He recently released the fantasy novel The Price of Valor. You can find him online via the links on our website. Your narrator for Guns of the Wastes is our own very favourite, Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and he wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. So here we have Guns of the Wastes 
by Django Wexler. The six days it took the mail cutter to traverse the pass at Rusthead were the longest of Palu Venati's life. The slope and the rocky ground cut the land ship's speed to a crawl, her eight fat tires bouncing and shuddering in their pods at the ends of her long, articulated legs. The ceaseless chug of the engine was his constant companion, faster than a heartbeat, broken every so often by the whistling hiss of venting steam. Vegetation petered out as they gained altitude, the scrub woods along the side of the road turning to weedy grass, which became patchy and finally disappeared altogether. At night, shielding his eyes from the ship's lanterns, he could see a great wheel of stars marching overhead, far outshining the handful he'd been able to make out from his window at the academy. They seemed distant and cold, and he would have gladly traded the view for the smoky, overcast sky of home. On the fourth day, they began descending again, the cutter's engine straining to keep her from careening wildly down the rock-strewn slope. Palu was surprised to see grass on this side, too, and even a few stunted trees. This was the edge of the waste, after all. But, of course, it was only the edge, and few of the enemy ever made it as far as the passes. Palu had always been careful to think of them as the Sra since that was the official designation. When his turn came to stand night watch, waiting with a rifle in his hand by the rail and staring out into the darkness, he thought he understood the impulse to make them sound more mystical. The great enemy. The plague. He imagined them gathering just outside the circle of light, circling around the little land ship and waiting for their chance to strike. Silly, of course. Even if a Sra made it this far east, it would be a small one and more likely to hide from a Grand Alliance ship than attack it. But Palu could not seem to prevent his hands sweating, however much he wiped them on his brand-new uniform trousers. He decided to chalk it up to anticipation. After all, his whole life, since the day he walked out of his home forever, his father's anger still ringing in his ears, had been preparation for this moment. When the sun rose on the sixth day, the captain of the cutter gave a sigh of relief at the sight of the Marillet's Wrath nestled quietly against a low hill. Taller and wider than the cutter, the light cruiser's proportions made her look squat by comparison. On each side of the warship, two heavy struts arched down to connect to a single long pod wrapped around a caterpillar track, while two forward legs bore conventional wheels. Her hull looked like a fat cigar cut in half, rounded side down, with the struts disappearing into long vertical slots. A tall, blocky superstructure amidships was topped by the bridge tower, and she carried two six-inch guns in fore and aft turrets. Colored lights flashed from the shutterbox attached to the Wrath's tower, too fast for Palu to follow. The cutter flashed the accept signal, three green lights, and powered across the flat ground to draw alongside the larger landship. It wasn't until they came close that Palu appreciated how much bigger the cruiser was. She towered above them, so much higher that she had to lower a rope ladder to reach the cutter's deck. He was ready by the time she did, his few possessions gathered into a backpack, his red uniform unfaded by sun or weather, 
His black leather cap, slightly too large, if truth be told, still had the factory shine, and the single bar at his collar gleamed. He'd spent the past night polishing all the brass on his uniform, feeling simultaneously embarrassed and unwilling to look less than his absolute best. The cutter captain, a civilian in a faded blue greatcoat, emerged onto the deck and looked at him with an unreadable expression. The man had wings of gray in his close-cropped hair, and Palu wondered how many young officers he'd delivered this way, and how many of them had come back. For a moment he thought the captain was going to offer some worldly advice, but he merely grunted and turned away, walking to where a couple of his men were fastening a hook line from the cruiser to the knot atop a sack of mail. Palu waited a moment longer. When no one seemed inclined to tell him what to do, he turned around and took hold of the ladder, climbing hand over hand toward his new life. The deck of the cruiser was corrugated steel instead of old stained wood, and everyone in sight was wearing the familiar red and black of the Grand Alliance Navy. Palu swung his legs over the rail, straightened up, and found two women approaching him from the direction of the bridge tower. On sighting the pair of stripes denoting a first lieutenant, Palu drew himself up and saluted, fist pressed against his heart. They made for an odd pair. The lieutenant was Katsi, like most of the crew, with a tight fuzz of curly hair under her cap and deep brown skin several shades lighter than his own. She was tall and broad-shouldered, with a formidable air of solidity, and she stared at him with an expression that said she was not pleased with what she was seeing. The other woman was a head shorter, with the paler, nut-colored skin and delicate features of a remnant, descended from the people who had once lived in the waste. Her hair was straight and hung past her shoulders, and instead of a uniform she wore a long khaki coat, thick with buttoned pockets and stained at the edges. She was, to all appearances, a civilian, and so Polly was surprised when the lieutenant stopped a half-step behind her and let her take the lead. Hmm she said, staring at him. Instead of a military-style cap, she wore a band of dark fabric across her forehead, with a variety of odd things sticking out of it. Palu saw several pencils, a ruler, and some sort of optical device on a hinged metal clip. The woman's hand went to the ladder, apparently out of habit. The lieutenant cleared her throat. "'He's not a specimen, Rev,' she said. "'He's our new officer, remember?' "'Oh, yes,' she blinked big, watery eyes. Palu held his position, hand pressed against his chest. His back was starting to ache. "'What's he doing?' "'Standing at attention,' the lieutenant said, with an air of exasperated patience. "'Why?' "'It's customary. You ought to welcome him and tell him to relax.' "'Sir,' Palu said, overcoming his hesitation to interrupt a superior, "'I think there may have been an error.' I was ordered to report to... To the Syriana play, the lieutenant said. I know. I sent for you. You are Second Lieutenant Palu Vitali, correct? Sir, yes, sir. His eyes were drawn toward the shorter woman, who had flipped down a complicated arrangement of brass and lenses and was fiddling with dials around the edges. The lieutenant, following his gaze, sighed. You may as well relax, she said. I'm Lieutenant Sark Elb. This is Professor Revia Aldoter. Yes, Revia said suddenly, looking at the lieutenant. 
Her movement set the device hanging in front of her face to swinging and clicking. What? I'm here. And I'm to report to you, Palu said. That's right, Sark said. I've got all the paperwork down below if you want to look it over. Understood, sir, Palu saluted again. It will be an honor to serve. If you say so, Sark muttered, looking Palu up and down. Well, come along. We'll get your things stowed. Of course, he turned to the professor, only to find her already walking away, one hand on her lens device, as she stared at the horizon. Don't mind her, Sark said. She's always like that. It's not that she means to be rude, the lieutenant explained, as they negotiated the cramped corridors of Wrath's underdecks. She just doesn't care, you see. Her attention span for anything that doesn't involve the Sra is about thirty seconds. It's best to warn you going in so you don't think it's personal. Can I ask, Palu said, turning sideways to let a pair of ratings hurry past, in what capacity she's serving? I'm not sure how the Admiralty classes her on the official books. Hell, I'm not sure she even gets a salary. Not that she'd know what to do with one. She's out here as a Sra expert, gathering intelligence. Some kind of secret project. And you, sir? I'm here to keep her alive. Which is a challenge even when we're in port, let me tell you. And since we lost our last second lieutenant, I've been short a pair of hands. Was there an enemy attack? What? Sark looked back at him and chuckled. <laughs> oh, no. She just couldn't stand to be around Rev anymore. So she petitioned the rear admiral for transfer. I asked the academy to send us a replacement. I assume this is your first posting? Yes, sir. And your Querby? Yes, sir. Are we going to have any religious problems? Palu winced. The only thing that most Katsi seemed to know about his homeland was that it produced more than its share of fanatics, clinging to their weird, singular god. For a moment he saw his father's face, purple with anger. Domus will not forgive you for venturing among the heathens. No, sir. No problems. Good. They reached a doorway, half covered by a thin curtain, that led into a narrow room. The walls and floor were all gray metal, and two wooden beds took up nearly all the floor space. You're in here with me until we get back to the Serianopoly. Rev's next door, when she could be bothered to sleep. Will we be returning soon, sir? As though his question had been an invocation, the ship shivered, rolling slightly as the legs shifted on their springs. A new vibration thrilled through the decking, and Palu felt a slight lurch as they started forward. Sark shifted her balance to compensate, automatically, and he found himself envying her unconscious ease. "'We're headed that way,' she said. "'But we've got a stop to make first. "'Do you need a few minutes?' Palu tossed his backpack onto one of the narrow beds and squared his shoulders. "'No, sir.' Sark gave him a broad smile, with only a hint of malice at the edges. Oh, good. A nice, keen lad. Several hours and a few minor lacerations later, the edge of his keenness was a bit dulled. Sark had sat him down in an empty room with a big leather-strapped chest and a canvas sack that clanked when she pulled it across the deck. The sack, it turned out, was full of scrap metal, 
scraped up by the crew from the site of a past engagement. Most of it was junk, but mixed in were bits and pieces of srah, which needed to be sorted out and wrapped in linen for transport back to the collegium in cots. She'd given Palu a pair of thick leather gloves for his hands, but he'd managed to nick his forearms a couple of times, handling some of the larger pieces of shrapnel. He set aside a chunk of twisted armor the size of a dinner plate and reached carefully into the bag for the next piece. It was a real find, a whole straw leg, practically intact. Palu held it up to the lamp, marveling at how light it was. Fully extended, it was nearly as long as his arm, and it could bend inward through six different joints, giving it a marvelous range of motion. The steel-gray struts were wrapped in a complicated network of tiny brass rods and pistons, with intermeshing gears where they met. When he moved it, the parts all clicked and turned in an absolutely smooth ballet of mechanical perfection. At the foot end, there was a polished sphere, a flawless steel bearing in a universal mount flanked by a pair of long, curved blades. Palu folded the leg up until it was curled in on itself like the limb of a dead insect, then reached for the roll of linen wrapping. He was just getting it stowed away when the lieutenant rapped at the doorframe behind him. Sark looked at his progress and gave an approving sort of grunt. Palu jumped to his feet and thumped a salute. "'Making progress, sir,' he said. "'Another few hours.' "'Leave it,' she said. "'You can finish later. "'We're coming up on old Gotterlack. "'I want you on deck with me in case Rev decides she needs a sample. "'Here's your first standing order. "'Don't let her jump off of anything. "'I swear that woman thinks she can fly.' "'Yes, sir.' A bit relieved, Palu followed the lieutenant back down the corridor to the main stairs, then up into the open air of Rath's deck. The ship was buzzing like a hive, men and women in red and black uniforms hurrying across the deck in all directions, both guns, small enough that they were set on hand-cranked swivel mounts rather than motorized turrets, were manned and ready, and both rails were lined with riflemen. Beyond the ship stretched the waste, an endless, uniform expanse of red-brown earth, swelling here and there into low hills. Patches of sparse grass grew here and there, and the occasional shrub protruded from a rocky cranny, but there was nothing larger and no animal life at all. It was so utterly unlike the foggy, riotously green landscapes of Palu's youth that it seemed as though it belonged on a different planet. The lieutenant touched his shoulder, and he realized he'd been staring. He turned, embarrassed, and found her holding out a rifle. "'I assume you can use one of these?' she said. "'Yes, sir.' Palu took the weapon, popped out the five-round clip in the butt to make sure it was loaded, then worked the bolt with a satisfying snick-snack. "'I won a first-year prize for marksmanship.' Sark chuckled. "'Let's hope you won't have to show it off.' She led him up toward the bow, past the forward gun crew and several lookouts. It felt odd to be sauntering casually along the deck while so many ratings were clearly intent on important work. But the lieutenant didn't pay the enlisted men any mind, and Palu followed her example. At the forward rail, Revia was staring into the distance through the brass scope clipped to her headband, now swiveled into position in front of her right eye. "'Anything interesting, Rev?' Sark said. Revia turned around. A bit too quickly, it turned out. Her view through the eyepiece must have swung disorientingly, 
because she lost her balance and took a step back against the rail. Sark lunged forward immediately and grabbed her by the arm, yanking her back and pulling the scope out of the way. Not yet, Revia said when she regained her footing, ignoring the entire incident. But I still think this is a bad idea. These patrols are too predictable. We have to check for ox carts, Sark said. Palu, looking out at the waste, had a hard time imagining any sort of animal living out here, much less a team of oxen. His confusion must have been obvious, because the lieutenant rolled her eyes. An ox cart is a sort of straw transport, she explained. They load it up with salvage and send it east to do whatever it is they do with the stuff. Build more straw? Revia said absently, scanning the horizon again. Don't they teach you that sort of thing at the academy? Sark said. No, sir. Palu said, cheeks heating slightly. Sra studies are restricted. He allowed a hint of pride to enter his voice. Only a tenth of the officer candidates are accepted by the Navy, anyway. They should teach everyone about them, Revia said without looking around. Every child of five should know how to kill a scuttler. Every schoolgirl should learn their weak spots along with her letters. Sark coughed and lowered her voice. She can be a bit passionate on the subject. The Grand Alliance has been too soft for too long, Revia said. We think that because we've gone a few decades without losing ground, we're safe. We let ourselves fall into familiar patterns. She laughed bitterly. What's a decade to the straw? What's a hundred years? Eventually... There's the city, Sark interrupted, pointing. Revia, instantly distracted, peered in the direction she indicated. Palu looked too, more curious than he cared to admit. The old cities featured heavily in the tales that made the rounds of the academy barracks. They were dark, haunted places, ruins ringed with trenches and barbed wire, silent monuments to the futile last stands against the power of the plague. Some of that, he'd figured, was mere childish exaggeration. But he expected more than this. Palu leaned out to get a better look and shook his head. "'There's nothing left,' he said. "'Not quite nothing.' Here and there, a stone wall still stood, flanked by piles of rubble. Some of the debris was recognizable. Flagstones, terry chunks of asphalt, some carved stone pieces that might have been part of a statue. But there were no intact buildings, no trenches, nothing tall enough that he would have had to stand on tiptoes to see over it. "'They've been sifting through this place for years,' Sark said. "'Persistent bastards. They'll harvest anything but stone.' Metal, wood, bone, anything. They... I see one, Palu said. He brought his rifle to his shoulder, peering over the iron sights, searching for the flash of movement that had caught his eye. It came again, the glitter of metal catching the sun. The thing moved in quick bursts, stopping as though getting its bearings, then dashing forward with startling speed. It was about the size of a dog, with a central oval body ringed by brass-mounted glass lenses and eight segmented legs. Even from a distance, the fluidity of its motion was disturbing. It moved as though it were truly alive. Well spotted, Sark said, shading her eyes with her hand. Palu's hands were sweating. He shifted the rifle against his cheek. Shall I fire? Don't waste the bullet. It's only a scuttler. No danger unless he finds a few thousand friends. Quick, though, isn't he? Palu nodded, slowly lowering the weapon. The little straw didn't so much walk as skate across the broken landscape, legs rising and falling neatly to match the ground so that the body barely stirred. 
He could see another one now, in the middle distance, poking its forelimbs into a pile of rocks. Marillet's wrath shifted underneath them, bearing to port. Revia turned to keep the Sra in view. The captain will circle the city to check for ox carts, Sark said. Too risky to try to go over all those rocks unless we have a good reason. The ox carts are dangerous? Not really, but they're valuable to the straw. We think, Revia said. Why else come all the way out here to load them up? Sark said. She shrugged. Anyway, we try to destroy them when we can. Anything that slows them down can't hurt. Revia muttered something under her breath, then froze with one finger. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. She snapped a new lens into place on her scope. Find the captain, she said. Tell him to reverse course now. Why? Sark said. This is a trap. The lieutenant smiled. The Sra don't set traps. They just come after you like hungry animals. You don't, Revia began. Something shifted, stones falling away with a clatter. A mound of rubble, one of a thousand innocuous hillocks created by the straw in their endless search for salvage, shifted slightly. Dull metal gleamed underneath. Gunspider! Sark shouted. A brilliant flash obscured the mound of debris, hidden quickly by a plume of evil black smoke. A moment later, the boom reached their ears, and wrath jerked underneath them. Soldiers grabbed the nearest rail as the ship slewed sideways, and Palu could hear the boiling kettle whistle of escaping steam. As if the shot had been a signal, the whole city came to life. Sra rose up from the rubble in a clatter of stone and dust, gangly metal legs clicking into motion as far as the eye could see. The ground seemed to writhe with them. Wrath rumbled under Palu's feet turning her nose away from the ruined city and putting her stern to the Sra. A bell sounded with a single long buzz, and the engine's sound rose to a new pitch. The landship leapt forward, jolting Palu's grip on the rail. At the same time, though, the whistle of steam rose to an unearthly shriek, 
and after a minute or so the hum of the engine fell away. Not good, Revia muttered. She leaned out over the rail, and Sark took hold of the back of her coat to keep her balanced as she peered down the side of the hull, leaking from the starboard strut. Sark looked at the pillar of steam that stretched behind the stricken ship. They can't have lost all the pipes, or we'd be going in circles. At that moment, the unearthly keening stopped. Palu could see the gushing plume of steam cut off, leaving a long, thin cloud dissolving slowly over the landscape. Did they fix it? he said. They figured out which pipes were busted and closed the valves, Sark said. Her voice was grim. But since they'll have to cut power to the port-side pod to compensate— We'll be slow, Revia ran along the rail until she could get a look astern. Too slow! The leading edge of the Sra swarm looked like a wave lapping gently over the land in a carpet of steel and brass. Thousands of scuttlers, skating smoothly over the broken ground on their multiple-jointed legs, merged at a distance into a monstrous unbroken mass of metal. Behind them were larger forms, spider-like shapes that hulked above the smaller Sra like horses in a pack of dogs. The time it had taken the Sra to dig themselves out and the brief chaotic sprint had given the Wrath a lead, but only a small one, and it was diminishing fast. Jupiter, protect us, one of the soldiers at the rail muttered. A couple of others nearby touched two fingers to their eyes, a traditional Kotzi gesture of supplication and prayer. Palu looked between them and Revia, still pressed against the rail. A worm of fear had burrowed into his stomach, and he swallowed and fought it down. Wrath surged forward at the best speed she could manage, massive caterpillar treads spitting out chunks of crushed earth and stone, accompanied by the distant keening of her steam tubes under tremendous pressure. The massive springs that supported the ship on its struts were unable to absorb every bounce and jolt of the terrain, and the deck began to shudder as though it were being shaken by playful giants. The ship's bells blared another command, three short and one long buzz. Prepare for action astern. The soldiers who had been lining both rails converged on the rear of the ship. Revia went to follow. You should get below, Sark said in the tone of someone expecting to lose the argument. No, the professor said, pushing back from the rail and flipping her scope out of the way. I have to see. Of course, Sark said under her breath. She grabbed Palu by the arm and hissed into his ear. Remember, our job is to keep an eye on her. You understand? Don't get distracted. He nodded and checked his rifle again. It was still loaded, but it suddenly seemed pitiful protection indeed against the mass of metal bearing down on them. What could a few bullets do against that? Revia was headed to the raised firing platform that jutted off the after edge of the bridge tower, its rail already lined with riflemen. Just beyond them was the after-six-inch gun, now turning frantically to bear on the swarm, and beyond that, the stern rail and another line of armed soldiers. "'Coming into range, sir,' a rating said, clinging to a handle on gun mount. The officer in charge, a young woman with her hair in a long, frizzy braid, peered through a pair of binoculars and then gave a decisive nod. "'Load high explosive,' she said, prompting the gun crew to begin a frenzy of action." A few seconds later, the gun's breech slammed closed and they all stepped away. The officer took hold of a railing and slashed her hand in the direction of the enemy. Fire! The sound of the gun seemed to fill the world, even over the roar of the engine and the scream of the steam pipes. 
Paulo could see the shell as it arced out, crossing more than a mile of broken ground in a perfect parabola to fall brutally fast among the scuttlers at the front of the swarm. A flower of smoke and dust bloomed, and pieces of metal scrap pinwheeled away. The sound reached them a few moments later, a distant hollow boom. By the time the dust cleared, the carpet of scuttlers had closed up again, scurrying over the broken bodies of the fallen. It reminded Palu of tossing a stone into a lake as a boy, watching the splash and the ripples slowly settle back into a placid surface. Domus, protect me, he thought. Oddly, the instinctive vestigial prayer sent a flare of anger through him that pushed back the terror. He turned his back on his father and his father's god. I'm not going to give that up now. If I die, it will be as the man I want to be. Wrath's forward gun fired, and another fiery flower bloomed among the scuttlers. The aftergun fired again, and again, an endless hammering rhythm. Sra bodies were thrown into the air by the force of the explosions, limbs flailing madly as they fell back to the earth. But the swarm came on. The guns had as little prospect of stopping it as Palu's boyhood stones had of emptying the lake. Then there was a bright white flash from the swarm, smothered instantly by a plume of black smoke. A new flower of flame and flying dirt bloomed two hundred yards short of wrath. More flashes followed, and in between the cacophonous boom of guns, Palu could hear the whistle of incoming shells. The explosions that marked their fall were always short of the ship, but marching closer, yard by yard, as the swarm advanced. Switch to armor-piercing, the officer yelled. Target the lead gunspider! Sailors raced to open another set of ammo chests, while two men cranked frantically on a large metal wheel to match the bearing a third was calling out to them. The gunspiders were the size of carriages, bulky creatures bearing a cannon that ran the whole length of their body, its bore like a single baleful eye. There were a dozen of them behind the mass of scuttlers and other straw, walking in a line abreast. "'Coming into range,' Revya muttered. "'Scuttlers are getting close,' Sark said. "'Can't outrun them like this.' Another round of flashes from the gunspiders, and another volley screamed down around the ship. This time the explosions bracketed Wrath, some falling ahead and some behind. One round went off practically in their path. The concussion rocked the landship on its springs, and Palu got one hot breath full of the smell of cordite. The bell buzzed another signal. The soldiers at the rail raised their rifles, and Sark thumped Palu on the shoulder. That's our cue. She braced herself against the rail and raised her own rifle. Palu followed suit, aiming down the iron sights at the leading edge of the swarm. Three more long buzzes. Fire at will. Every rifle cracked at once, like an old-fashioned musket volley. Palu had picked out one scuttler on the edge of the swarm as his target, and he saw it crumple and fall but he had no way of knowing if it was his bullet or another's that had put it down. It didn't matter. Behind it was another, and another. He lined them up and pulled the trigger again and again, feeling the nerve-deadening thump of the rifle kicking against his shoulder and working the bolt back and forth to eject the spent shells. When his clip ran out, he turned and grabbed another from a box someone had strapped to a handle behind the line. It wasn't going to be enough. The scuttlers were too fast, and there were far too many of them. He could hear a high-pitched whine as the engineers pushed the remaining steam tubes to the edge of their rated pressures and beyond, 
but the little Srab were still catching up. They were within a hundred yards now, spreading out, limbs a blur, as they drove themselves forward at fantastic speeds. It made them easier targets, since they didn't take time to dodge and weave. But in spite of the efforts of the riflemen, the gap slowly closed. Palu sighted on a scuttler, only to see it vanish in a blast of fire and smoke. The Sra's shots were falling among their own now. Palu smiled, adjusted his aim, then was driven off his feet by a thunderous roar. Two shells had landed on Wrath, nearly simultaneously. One impacted just past the aftergun, punching through the deck and exploding underneath. The force of the blast ripped a hole in the deck plating and twisted the gun and its mounting into scrap metal. The second shell hit the stern, just below the deck line. It failed to penetrate the armored hull, but the explosion sent a shockwave and shards of red-hot steel zipping through the riflemen gathered there. When Palu raised his head, the deck was awash in blood. The man beside him had been chopped practically in half by a flying fragment, releasing a sea of bile and gore. Beyond him, a woman was curled up around an invisible wound, screaming wordlessly, while another sailor hung limply on the rail. Sark grabbed Palu's shoulder and spun him around. It took him a moment to understand her through ears still ringing from the blast. You, all right. I... Palu looked down at his uniform, which was spattered with blood. He didn't feel any pain. I... I think so. Come on. She pushed past him, leaping over the disemboweled body, her boots squelching in the pool of blood. Palu wanted to vomit, but he didn't have the time. He was already following, keeping his eyes glued to her broad back so that he didn't have to look down. The deck shook with a metallic clang. He thought it was another hit. But there was no explosion, and the sound came again and again. The Sra were jumping onto the deck gathering down below the stern of the ship and hurling themselves into the air, limbs snapping closed like steel-jawed traps. For every three that tried it, two fell short or missed the mark and tumbled beneath Wrath's treads, but a half-dozen had already made it, and more were coming. Palu skidded to a halt on the corrugated metal deck, bringing his rifle up to his shoulder. The soldiers who'd survived the shell blast were starting to pick themselves up, but the Sra were already on top of them. He picked out a scuttler closing in on a dazed young woman, one of its limbs already drawing back to deliver the killing blow. It was barely ten yards away. And Palu's shot caught it between two of its glass lenses, the bullet punching a neat hole in its carapace and emerging from the other side of its body in a spray of fine machine parts. The soldier he'd saved rolled away, groping for her own weapon, as another Sra pulled itself over the rail and landed on the deck. Other rifles sounded, and scuttlers collapsed, but more of them were landing all the time. At the rail, Palu saw a young man grappling hand to limb with one of the things, the scuttler pushing one bladed claw into his stomach with piston-driven strength. A large woman with a deck sergeant's insignia delivered a two-handed blow with her rifle butt that shattered a scuttler's eye, sending it reeling across the deck, before another machine jumped on her shoulders and speared her neatly through the throat. Sark, ahead of him, had discarded her rifle and drawn a large-barreled pistol of unfamiliar design. When she fired it at a scuttler, the weapon nearly kicked itself out of her grip, 
and the machine slumped to the deck with an inch-thick hole in its oval body. She was running toward Revia, Palu realized. The professor had gotten down from the firing platform, apparently uninjured, but the lurching of the ship had tossed her against the rail near the hole in the deck. Sark reached her side, blasting another scuttler that had gotten tangled up on the rail and sending it tumbling out into the waist. She grabbed Revia and pulled her to her feet, just as another wave of straw landed. Two of the machines hopped down through the hole in the deck into Rath's innards, and Palu heard shots and screams. Two more headed for Sark. Palu raised his rifle, sighted, and fired, and one of them went down. But when he yanked back on the bolt, it gave the clunk that meant an empty clip. Sark had her big pistol broken open, pulling a pair of fat bullets from her pouch and struggling to fit them into the breech. She's not going to make it. Palu was moving forward before he realized what he was doing, reversing his rifle like a club, the barrel hot in his hands. The second scuttler leapt for Sark, bladed forelimbs extended, and Palu caught it in midair with an overhand swing. Glass shattered, and the thing's carapace dented, but it was still squirming, forelimbs slicing at his shins. Palu danced backward. One of the blades scored, opening a long slice through his leather boot and leaving a shallow gash in his leg. As the scuttler regained its footing, Sark grabbed his shoulder and pushed him aside. Her heavy pistol spoke again, blasting a hole in the little machine and putting it down for good. Rifles were barking all around them, catching the scuttlers as they landed and strewing the deck with mechanical corpses. Thanks, Sark said, pulling Revia to her feet. The professor's eyes were wide and unfocused. Is she okay? Palu said. Just stunned, I think. Sark looked out over the stern, where the gunspider's heavy ordnance was still flashing. I think we may be pulling away from them. May get out of this yet. The ship shuddered, armor plating ringing like a bell. Palu stumbled and grabbed the rail, while Sark held on to Revia. He braced himself for the shell's explosion, but it didn't come. Instead, two long, multi-jointed limbs reached over the stern rail. They were tipped with crescent-shaped blades, and the sra punched the points into the deck, cutting easily through the steel. With this leverage, it hauled itself up and on to the wrath. This was no dog-sized scuttler. It was fully as tall as Palu, limbs stretching six feet or more, a hulking monstrosity of iron and brass. The lenses that ringed its body were the size of dinner plates. A dozen rifles fired at once, and the air was full of the ping and whine of ricochets as the bullets bounced off its armor like hailstones off a tin roof. It ignored them, picking its way through the bodies of its comrades with mechanical grace, and began to slaughter everything within reach. The soldiers stood their ground, firing as it bore down on them. It opened the first man from throat to groin with a single casual swing, the spray of blood coating its metallic hide in gore. The young woman Palu had saved fired her rifle from only a few inches away, with no more effect than the others. The straw caught her with the point of its blade on the backswing, punching it into her chest. The momentum of the strike hurled her off the deck entirely, her body pinwheeling over the rail to fall to the broken ground below. Butcher! Sark growled, identifying the thing. She sighted carefully and fired, hitting it square in one of its lenses. 
but the heavy round from her pistol only cracked the thick glass. Tossing the weapon aside, she yanked something from her belt. A grenade, Palu realized, as time seemed to slow to a crawl. Sark was running, pulling Revia behind her, and her free hand caught Palu and dragged him along as well. The explosion shook the ship, as though the gun spiders had scored another hit. Sark threw herself flat, and Palu needed no urging to follow her. The concussion passed over them, a wave of hot wind and smoke. He twisted around to see the effects. The deck was blackened in a wide circle around the butcher, but the srau was still there, burn marks searing its iron hide. At least one of its legs was damaged, dragging uselessly behind it, but that didn't seem to impede its mobility much. The surviving soldiers scrambled away as it came forward. Shit, Sark said under her breath. Shit, shit, shit. Rev, now would be the time for a good idea or two. But Revia, eyes still wide, was breathing fast and shallow, and didn't seem to hear. The butcher turned, and Palu saw the lens Sark's shot had cracked. The way was suddenly clear to him, as obvious as if Domus himself had dropped the knowledge ready-made into his brain. At the thought, his lip curled. The hell with Domus. This is my decision. There was another grenade on Sark's belt. He pulled it free and rolled to his feet, ignoring her shout of warning. Hand grenades were a rarity, but they'd practiced a few times at the academy, and the theory was simple. Yank on the pin to start the fuse, and get rid of it before it went off. Palu got to his feet and aimed himself at the butcher. He pulled the pin. The deck was treacherous underfoot, slick with blood and littered with scraps of scuttler. He ran flat out, leaping human and sra bodies. As he came up to the butcher, it swung a forelimb in his direction, a lazy cut that would have decapitated him if he hadn't ducked. Popping up inside its reach, he pressed himself against the underside of its body, one arm extended. His right hand, holding the grenade, stretched up along the butcher's carapace until it found the cracked lens. He slammed the grenade against it, feeling the glass give slightly, and held it there with all the strength he could muster. It was a long, strained moment of stillness. Palu cheek pressed against the butcher, could hear the click and whir of tiny clockwork through its metal skin. Then the world went white. Palu woke up feeling better than he'd ever felt in his life. He was floating on a golden cloud, staring up at the brilliant blue of the sky, his body a distant, numb anchor far below him. A shadow fell across him, and he blinked. A brown blob resolved into the features of Lieutenant Sark Elb. Oh, he said. His throat felt raspy as though he'd been shouting. Are we dead? Not yet, Sark said. That's good. Palu's thoughts felt fuzzy. If he'd been dead, then this would have been heaven. And that would have meant his father and Domus were right all along. He sat up, or tried to. His muscles didn't seem to work the way they should. 
Sark reached out and put a hand on his chest, just a light touch. It stopped him as completely as if she'd lowered a thousand-pound weight. Lie still, she said. Rev's still tying you off, and we gave you a pretty big dose of juice. Juice? Palu said. A powerful opioid, Rev said from his right. Useful as a painkiller in limited doses. Oh, he flopped his head to the right. She was on her knees, bending over him, working on a knotted bandage that swathed his right arm. There was something wrong there, too. He wasn't sure if it was the drug, but he thought there ought to be more of his right arm. He tried to wiggle his fingers, and silver pain lanced up into his chest, even through the comforting haze. His throat went thick. Oh, he said again. Good tactics, Rev said, finishing the knot. Using the body of the butcher to shield yourself from the shrapnel? Palu struggled to remember if that had been his plan. As best he could recall, he'd gone underneath the straw because it seemed like the best way to keep from getting skewered and dropping the grenade. He hadn't really expected to survive. Did I kill it? he said. Yep, Sark said. Blasted its eye right in and sent nasty metal chunks through all its tender spots. She paused with a hint of a smile. I have to say, I'm impressed. Thanks. Palu turned his head away from his maimed arm, feeling dizzy. What happened to the rest of them? We got a little help, Sark pointed, and Palu flopped his head the other way to follow her finger. He was on the deck of the Wrath, lying on a canvas stretcher near the rail. Beyond the deck, he could see the blasted ground of the waste, and, a few hundred yards away, the looming shape of another landship. Serianopoli towered as high above the light cruiser as Marillet's Wrath herself did above a scuttler. The battleship looked like a mountain on the move, a solid wall of metal at the height of a church spire back home. Unlike Wrath and the Cutter, unlike any other class of landship, it didn't have long, curving struts leading down to wheels and engine pods. Where the light cruiser was designed to keep the SRA at arm's length, the battleship was meant to confront them head-on. Its hull was supported on enormous caterpillar treads, like Wrath's rear pods, but they were concealed from view by a heavy skirt of interlocking steel plates that hung down from the hull and protected the engines from the SRA. At the Academy, Palu had heard there was a whole twilight world under there, amidst the screaming, grinding steam pipes, that each battleship had a corps of soldiers dedicated to hunting down any SRA that managed to sneak underneath. On the deck of the battleship high above, three triple-gun turrets aimed their long barrels over her starboard rail. Men swarmed over them, tiny as ants, revealing their true massive scale. The captain sent up a signal rocket as soon as we started our run, Sark said, looking at the battleship with a satisfied expression. Fortunately for us, Serianopoli was on the southern edge of her patrol area. The SRA turned away as soon as she came over the horizon. The SRA ran? Palu said. The warm, cottony feeling was rising all around him again. He suddenly felt very tired. The SRA never go up against a battleship, Sark said. They're smart enough to know when they haven't got a chance. Until today, 
Revia said softly. The Sra had never ambushed a ship. They are smart enough to know better. She was staring up at the mountainous steel war machine, too, but her expression was more like regret. And they never, ever give up. Someday. But Palu was no longer listening. He closed his eyes, and the black waters of blessed sleep closed over him. I just loved the blend of genres in this story. A mix of war drama, steampunk, science fiction and alternate history with a touch of Edgar Rice Burroughs-style pulp adventure. It's a tricky mix and Django performs narrative alchemy with it. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The button is on the website. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. And uh, be careful of that book you have on your bedside table. Don't turn your back on it. It might eat you. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.